Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. You have fingerprints, right? Yep. Most of us do. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of us do, unless something has come along to uh, change that matter. But uh, I don't think I really have to explain what these are. Uh, you have these fingers, your phalanges, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. At, the, at the end of each one, you find these uh, curious designs, little trenches and whorls, forms this little pattern. And uh, from a very early age, we all know that these signify who we are, right? Put it in ink, put it on a page. There's your fingerprint. It's a part of like kindergarten art classes. You know, you make a turkey with your hand. That turkey is a, is a blueprint of who. Well, not really a blueprint, but it is a, a signature of who you are. No one's Thanksgiving hand paint turkey is the same as another individual's Thanksgiving hand paint turkey. They're unique, and really, they should be what we should use, in my opinion, as signatures on all official documents. You think? Yeah. It's you know just with the turkey design is. In specific? Is yes, that yeah, like yeah. Kofi Annan, um, Barack Obama, Vladimir Putin, I, I don't care who. They, they make an official document at the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. They have to put their hand down mm-hmm. uh, with paint and then trace around it and then make a Thanksgiving turkey. Oh, and, and, of course, you're bringing this up because it's thought that the fingerprint is unique right. to us. Yes, right. It's this unique biometric that we've got, nobody else has it. And uh, that's one of the things we're going to get into today, the, the, the fingerprint as an identification tool. Mm-hmm. And we, we generally, that's where our minds go. When you talk about fingerprints, you think of CSI and all this stuff, and, and oh, there are prints left here, prints left there, and those prints that the police are supposedly going to collect and solve a crime with. But we often overlook the underlying question, why do we have them to begin with? What mm-hmm. are they? Right? Yeah. And we're going to discuss that as well. Fingerprints, the why of fingerprints from various standpoints. That's the the episode today. Well, here's the deal. Many mammals have them, but humans are the only ones to have really complex patterning. And uh, there's a general flow to fingerprints, um, especially to what we call the ridges that translate into one of three major pattern types. So we're talking about a whorl, a loop, or an arch. And it's possible to have just one, two, or all three pattern types among your ten fingers. And here's a little uh, tidbit about that. 60% of the world's population has loops. 5%, only 5% of the world pop- world's population has arches. And 35% of the world's population has whorls. Nice. Yes, and I can tell you that I've already detected a couple of whorls on my fingertips. But why? Why do we have these fingerprints? Well, one theory. Why? Why, Robert? <laughs> why are we cursed with these things? Well, one one reason that is often brought up and theorized about, uh, and certainly it makes it seems to make a lot of sense on the surface of things, is that we use them for grip. Mm-hmm. It's like because you look at it, it's like ah, oh, it's like you got some ridges there, uh, and uh, I think of like gloves that are made for gripping things, and they tend to have some sort of a rigid, ridge, ridge-based surface there. It's yeah, weightlifting gloves, Yeah, too. weightlifting gloves, things like that. So maybe we have them to lift them. Maybe it's so that if we're picking up a glass of milk or swinging a battle axe, whatever you need to grip, the groove prints improve the friction rate between finger and object. But not so, <laughs> according to a team of researchers at the University of Manchester. They looked into this, and they found the whole idea is just a bunch of hooey. It's a 2009 study, Journal of Experimental Biology, and the Manu team measured the friction rate between flesh and object and discovered only a marginal increase. They also discovered that printed finger pads actually uh, come into contact with an acrylic class 
33% less than completely smooth finger pads. And in some cases, the prints actually reduce our grip rather than improve it. Hmm. Okay. So that is out. We don't need them yes. for grip. Yeah. Okay, so there are a couple other theories uh, in play here. It may be that they allow our skin to stretch and deform more easily, protecting it from damage. Yeah, the idea here, I like to think of men's slacks. Like, what are the least style of slacks a guy can wear? Big balloony uh, khakis, right? Mm -hmm. With like a big balloon crotch that anytime you sit down, it looks like um, some sort of like uh, automobile protection device has gone off in your pants. That's what that is. Yes, it is. That's balloon balloon crotch in khaki pants. And I, I used to have to wear khaki pants uh, to my job at a newspaper. And so they, I was always having to deal with that. And it's awful, but I'm pretty. if your pants are that baggy, you're pretty much guaranteed not to rip them, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like yoga pants or hammer pants. There's a lot of room to move around. You're not going <laughs> to rip them. But if you're wearing, say, some nice stylish skinny jeans, some like really narrow drain pipes, and you try and do anything, heaven forbid you try and do the splits or even bend over and pick something up, you're going to tear something. Hopefully, you'll tear the pants. But but I like to think then of this theory is that the fingerprints, uh, our rigid fingerprints, are kind of the uh, the balloon pants, the hammer pants of skin. <laughs> okay. So those ridges are kind of like the hammer pants in that they could expand and deform. Yeah. On will if they need. There's also this idea that uh, fingerprints may allow water trapped between our finger pads and the surface to drain away and improve surface contact in wet conditions. Kind of makes sense, right? Uh, Other researchers have suggested that the ridges could increase our finger pads' touch sensitivity. Yeah, that's a really cool one. Uh, And this is the the idea that when you're, you're feeling particularly fine features, such as a single human hair on a desktop, your sense of touch depends on skin vibrations that arise as your fingertip moves across the desk. So in 2009, a team of French researchers looked into this, uh, and they found that a rigid fingertip moving across a surface produces vibration frequencies that are detected by special nerve endings called bacinian corpuscles. And these nerve endings then pass this information on to sensory neurons to signal the brain. So the idea here is those without those ridges, if you, uh, you know, burned them off with battery acid so that you can commit more crimes or what have you, uh, you would not be able to feel as, as, as easily. You would not be able to feel those tiny, fine details and things. Which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, so here's this idea. Can you be born without them? Here's this question. Ooh. You can. You can? You can, Really? Oh, yeah. well, do explain. This is uh, new one on me. This was discovered when a 29-year-old Swiss woman at the U.S. border was made to wait for hours as puzzled officers tried to make sense of her missing prints. And as a result, this has been dubbed the immigration delay disease. I kid you not. Really? It's huh. very, very rare and has only been documented in four families across the world. So um, they had no prints? They had no prints, Yeah. So and, you could argue they had identical prints then, since the the prints that they had were non-existent. Uh, maybe that's a finer question. But, yeah, I was going to say it's a, maybe a different question. Yeah. But genetically, it is able. It's possible for you to be born without prints. Uh, again, very rare, and I think that the that calling it uh, a disease is even kind of a bit specious because it's like, well, you know, what what is what's the problem other than yeah, not having maybe you, you can't feel very fine surfaces. Well, see, that's, that's the only thing. They say typically the pores of sweat glands lie along the tiny ridges that make up our fingerprints. So for people with this mutation, the ridges don't f- even form to begin with, interfering with sweat glands. Huh. Okay, and as a result, people actually, um, they, they sweat less on their hands. Uh, so the body makes up for it. Um, now, 
you can get rid of them, your fingerprints, if you've ever wondered. Um, in yeah. fact, some people have gone to some crazy lengths to do so. But uh, repeat exposure to some chemicals can can remove them or modify them, as well as calluses. Yeah. So if you're doing a certain type of work, you could actually have your uh, fingerprints pretty much smeared to nothing. Yeah, or the traditional method in uh, crime families is to let a turtle chew them off. You put a little, you smear a little meat paste on each, uh, uh-huh. on each of your fingerprints, and uh-huh. you just hold your, preferably a, a baby box turtle or a pack of them, and then you let them chew on the fingertips until you're satisfied, and then you're good to go. Yeah. This is the Pagliacci uh, crime family yes. method. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, in the 1930s, kidnapper Theodore Handsome Jack Clutus took a knife to his fingerprints. And that was the first documented case of finger mutilation. God. And then the n- notorious bank robber John Dillinger dipped his fingers in acid. Ah, but see, that's the, the thing. Somehow that sound, like I didn't wince at that one, like with the slicing. But uh, yeah, both are actually the, pretty terrible. Right, but the, somehow the burning of the prints off seems not so crazy, but um, surely it hurt. Yeah. Well, I guess the thing is we can relate. Everyone has cut their fingers, or most of us, I feel like, have cut their, their fingers while they're, like, peeling potatoes or something. Yeah. So we have a, a frame of reference for that, whereas being scalded by battery acid, eh, maybe not so much. I just feel like if you're going to cut the, the, the fingerprints off of your hands, that you're already bringing more attention to your fingers anyway. So people yeah. are like, hey, why, why, why do you have cut fingertips? Oh, I don't know. No reason. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, in that day and age, you're probably like, that's the dude with the strange missing fingertips. Do you think something's up with him? Yeah, I don't know. It, just any kind of self-inflicted flaying, whatever your purpose, it's just weird. I'm just saying, it's not subtle. I just think it was a bad way to go. Yeah. All right, so how do fingerprints form in the first place? Well, it's 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 uh, interesting because it's not something we are... It's not in our genes. It's not uh, a necessarily a genetic thing really that's right. going on here. This is something that forms in the womb. And what happens is uh, the outer epidermis and the inner subcutaneous tissue sandwich the dermal cell layer between them, like a slice of cheese between two slabs of bread. Mm-hmm. And as the pressure builds, the slice of cheese, um, again, that's the, the dermal cell layer, compresses and buckles, erupting into random surface patterns. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to give some more detail on that, too, because some of how that's done actually influences the pattern that you get. Um, We have these friction ridge skin covering the surface of our hands, Mm -hmm. and that's what comprises the ridges and the furrows. So as you say in those... um, during those weeks, I think it's 10 through 15 weeks, the fetus develops smooth volar pads. These are raised pads on the fingers, palms, and feet because of swelling mesenchymal tissue, which is a precursor for blood vessels and connective tissues. And then around week 10, the volar pads stop growing, but the hand continues to grow. And then as a result, over the next few weeks, the volar pad is absorbed back into the hand. This is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, During this stage, the first signs of the ridges begin to appear, and the spacing and arrangement of these early ridges is a random process, but it's dictated by the overall geometry and the topography of the volar pad. So if the ridges appear while the volar pad is still uh, quite pronounced, then the individual will develop a whorl pattern. And then if the primary ridges appear while the volar pad is less pronounced, then the person will get a loop pattern on their fingers. And then if, uh, finally, if in the, if the primary ridges appear while the volar pad is nearly absorbed, then the individual will develop an arch pattern. And I love how they talk about it as topography, because it really does kind of remind me of, uh, 
the on, the Earth's own surface, right, and the various elements going on to create it causes you know mountains to rise mm-hmm. and and, uh, and valleys to deepen. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and this is going on in the womb. It's so cool. So could one Olsen twin frame the other for murder? No, no, no. Because not with fingerprints. Anyway. <clears throat> no, um, because. Even the Olsen twins, uh, as identical as they are, they do not have the same fingertip patterns. Now, they may have similar patterns because uh, the patterns that you do get are genetic. Right. Uh, but they will have a unique marker in theirs. So it's kind of like if one twin were slapped in the face by the same person mm-hmm. in the exact same way, they mm-hmm. still wouldn't get the exact same bruise on their face necessarily because it's something that's being done to the twin rather than something that's purely emerging from their genetics. That's right. Okay. Yes. Cool. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will get into this idea of fingerprints as identification. To what extent is this a fabulous idea? To what extent is it deeply flawed? All right, we're back. Uh, before we start talking about how unique fingerprints are and, and bringing that into question, you know, I did want to mention that ridge characteristics may indicate genetic predisposition of certain diseases. And uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention actually performed research in 2005 that investigated these ridge characteristics as a genetic roadmap for the predisposition of certain diseases, in particular people with diabetes. Found uh, They found actually that... These people have a much higher ridge count than those with normal glucose tolerance. So it's kind of interesting that it, um, that they actually do tell us something. It's much, not much just nonsense that it happens. It's not like a nonsense password that doesn't mean anything in and of itself, but is unique. Well, and I kind of think of palm re- reading in this sense. Oh, chiromancy, if you want to get fancy on it. Well, chiromancy it is. Yeah. Uh, and that you could be able to tell something about y- yourself through these fingerprint patterns. So the idea that a fingerprint is unique and could be used as a biometric, that could be used as something on our body that identifies who we are. The idea itself, you find this in ancient uh, Japanese and Chinese civilization. They recognize pretty early on that, uh, that this is something that's unique and we can use this essentially to put our signature on things. But for the most part in the modern world, especially in the Western world, it goes back to Sir Francis Galton. 19th century polymath. He was one of these guys, by polymath, of course, we mean he was into everything. Mm -hmm. He was just a a learned man who loved to experiment, loved to read about things, research things, and figure out how the world worked. And, uh, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily a specialist in in any particular field, but just was ready to just go all in on whatever he was studying. And uh, he was also the cousin of Charles Darwin, incidentally. Ran in the family. Yeah, ran in the family, I guess, the brilliance and all. But uh, he's the one who really pushed this idea that fingerprints are such a unique identifier and that they're a great biometric and that the idea of two individuals possessing the same fingerprint were so slim mm-hmm. that it was virtually flawless. I believe he said that the chances of two people, and this was, this was his math, uh, the chances of two people possessing a matching fingerprint were one in 64 billion. Which, back then, would have seemed pretty reasonable, right? Yeah. In terms of the chances of someone else possessing the same fingertips. And so that was a good case to try to use this as a biometric. Right. But what does that mean today? Like, just on on the math level, it's interesting. There's a guy, there's a fingerprinting expert, Professor Edward M. Winkleried, 
which is a great last name. My own science editor, uh, Allison Loudermilk, who also has a great last name, she kept uh, emailing me back, responding about this guy's name. She's like, oh, my God, that's the greatest name I've ever heard. Uh, because it, it, there's a little, uh, it sounds like he should be uh, abducted by um, by little people. There's a little bit of rumple still skin. I was going to say, it, it sounds you know? a bit of a children's story name. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> as much as we, we love his last name, uh, M. Winkle Reed is a, a fingerprinting expert. Mm-hmm. And he argues that since world population now exceeds 6.4 billion, and most of us possess 10 digits, we have more than 64 billion prints out there to bump the odds of having any two individuals share a single print, uh, which he argues that's just one of the reasons why multiple f- fingerprints are important and that we really need to consider reforming fingerprinting as a biometric. Uh, that's one of his big causes, or has been over the last several years, is that we really need to rethink how much we can trust fingerprints as an identifier. So, okay, then that problem actually would become more pronounced as more people come online, right? So we've talked about adding the 3.5 billion people by the year 2050 so that we'll now be 9.5 billion people. Yeah, but even when you, if you disregard that as just pure number hijinks, you, you still get down to the question... Why did we buy? Why did we buy into this idea that that, that fingerprints are, are so perfect? And according to statistician Stephen M. Uh, Steigler, twentieth uh, century reliance on fingerprints has less to do with science and reliability and more to do with courtroom drama mm-hmm. and, and a fortunate lack of pattern repetition in prints. So the argument here is that all right, you have a trial going on. That fingerprint it looks really cool up there on the screen. For the most part, it all things. Created equal, it's pretty reliable, and I mean, it's as we'll discuss here. There, there is a lot mm-hmm. of reliable things about the fingerprint. It's still pretty unique, but it's not flawless. Uh, in fact, since 1995, evaluations of fingerprinting labs by collaborative testing services, uh, those evaluations have discovered fingerprinting error rates ranging from three percent to twenty percent. So, yeah. when you get into, regardless of how how much you can trust fingerprinting. So you get into the flawed, potentially flawed nature of human fingerprinting biometrics and how we record them and keep track of them. Interpret them. Interpret them and then press charges with them. You can get into like upwards of 20% failure rate, 20% chance that you're going to have flawed results. That gets pretty big. I mean, and that's why you look at some of the rather lofty figures. I think it's like 301 we're up to. As of this uh, recording, 301 individuals cleared by the Innocence Project, mm-hmm. individuals who had been convicted largely based on oh, based on a number of things, but fingerprinting was a part of that. And then they were exonerated via DNA evidence. Well, you know, previous to 1995, it seemed like the gold standard. And right. it's, you know, historically between 1995 and now, there really hasn't been that much time that has passed. So right. obviously a lot more reform needs to happen, especially when you consider um, that, you know, this was this was the way that they began to identify criminals in the 19th century. And that was really helpful technology then, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to mention, too, that... Uh, that this has its beginnings in 1858 when an Englishman named Sir William Herschel was working at, this, at the chief magistrate at the Hookley district in Singapore, India. And in order to reduce fraud, he had the residents record their fingerprints when signing business documents. So, again, that has a, a pretty uh, big tradition back in Japanese culture as well and, and before that. But, as you said, this is a... Uh, 
this is such a dramatic way to ID someone and to say, this is the person. Yeah. That you can see how it's been in use for so long. But now, of course, we are in a different age where we have so many different biometrics to work with. Yeah, and people like uh, in Winkle Reed and uh, Steigler, they're not, they're not arguing that we should just abandon fingerprints. No. But, but rather that we should become smarter about how we use them and that we should not depend on them as a sole biometric. However, that, again, Fingerprints are great, and they can be very useful. And I think it's really interesting, too, how useful fingerprints can be, not only immediately after death, but after a certain amount of decay has occurred. I found this interesting BBC News story that interviewed Alan Bale, who is the author of the UK's Standard Police Manual on Dead Hands, which is some great expertise there. And this is also something that you'll find you'll find in U.S. and other countries' uh, forensics manuals as so well. So when he goes to cocktail parties, does he say, I'm an expert on dead hands? I hope so. I hope he does. Yeah. Uh, because these are great. This is the kind of stuff I'm going to have to share the next cocktail party I go to. Because uh, he, he talks about how, uh, quote, if a hand is found in the water, you will see that the epidermis starts to come away from the dermis like a glove. This sounds gruesome, but if a hand has been badly damaged, I cut the epidermis off and put my own hand inside that glove, mm-hmm. and by glove he means the flesh off that hand, mm-hmm. and then try to fingerprint it like that. So even though the outer layer of your of your, the flesh on your hand has come off like mm-hmm. a glove, like a loose glove from the rotting remnants of the rest of your hand, mm-hmm. this guy and other forensics professionals can then come along and just slip their own hand into your flesh glove and start rolling some prints out. They'll just buffalo bill that. They'll just yes. James gum that. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, that's comforting. Yeah. That's really I mean. comforting. <laughs> well, all right. Let's talk a little bit about the future of fingerprints because I found this really interesting. Um, there's a Huntsville, Alabama company called iDare, and it has developed a system that can scan and identify a fingerprint from about uh, 20 feet away. And coupled with other biometrics, it could soon allow security systems to grant or deny access from a distance without requiring users to stop and scan a fingerprint or swipe an ID card. Now, the current customer for this is the military, but it has possibilities, obviously, in the marketplace and, in fact, is being beta tested in a gym right now. But the hope by the maker is that um, they can merge this technology with financial data so you could simply scan your fingerprint uh, rather than relying on a credit card data and an RFID chip or a credit card itself. Yeah, that would that would be great. I've I've undergone a fair amount of fingerprinting lately, and it is uh, e- even even in the when you're not using the the actual ink when you're using the the scanning method, it's mm-hmm. still it's quite an ordeal to go through. But my mind instantly goes to RoboCop with this because I can imagine RoboCop yeah. arriving on the scene, holding out the gun, making the uh, perpetrators put their hands up. And then in that instant, instantly scanning their fingerprints and getting uh, and checking the database to see if they match up with uh, known perpetrators uh, yeah. or wanted uh, felons. I mean, you, this this kind of technology just kind of goes wild with your mind, doesn't it? Because you can just yeah. imagine all sorts of implications on that. Um, I also wanted to mention ears. This as is, the this new fingerprint. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because we know we have other biometrics. We have um, voice fingerprints, DNA fingerprints, iris, and retinal scans. Yeah, and like retinal scans especially that's been used to death in sci-fi and, and even non-sci-fi, just slightly futuristic stuff on TV. So mm-hmm. we get that. We, we were already this hammered into our minds that retinal scans would be useful. But the ear, 
thing, that caught me by surprise. But when you when when I read it, I'm like, well, obviously, yeah, everyone's ear is going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. But I'd never thought of it as a biometric, a true biometric before. Yeah, because when you're born, that's the ear you get, right? Yeah. It, you know, it doesn't change much other than length. Yeah, or things that you do to it. You get a, like a, some piercing. I mean, that's the thing. The ear is one of, if not the most commonly mutilated parts of the human body. Well, and also grown. Right? Yes. Under the skin of the arm. What was the woman who uh, had the tissue for her ear that she grew under her arm? I don't know. Do you recall that? You're not thinking of the artist, though. No, I'm thinking about something else. Ah. ah, anyway, scrap that. The point is, is that there are biometrics that are geared toward the ear. And this is from uh, Wired Science from Dave Mosher. He says that a new shape-finding algorithm called Image Ray Transform, which boasts 99.6% accuracy, according to a study uh, by the IEEE Fourth International Conference, uh, could use the outer ear to identify people. And it works by unleashing a ray-producing algorithm on an image to seek out curved features. And when a ray finds one, the software draws over the part and repeats the analysis. And in a few hundred or a thousand cycles, it cleanly paints the ear more than any other face structure. Wow. Of course, there are problems here, which I think you've already indicated. Earmuffs. Yes. All Uh, all the bank robbers were wearing earmuffs. We have no idea who they were. Well, what happens to you when you when you get older? The the cartilage fall off. Yes, your ears fall off because the cartilage in your ear begins to stretch, right? Right. Or you get a bunch of uh, piercings or tribal uh, things, you know. Well, that's the other limitations of the system because you could also have hair covering the ears. Ooh, yes. Again, as you get older, there's less than ideal lighting conditions, and Mm -hmm. then the big one is the different IDs generated from different angles that it's taken from. So there you have it, fingerprints, what they are, why we have them, how we use them to ID people and and single out our uniqueness among so many other humans. Hopefully that will give you a little more uh, food for thought the next time you're uh, you're rolling that print around in some ink. Or Yeah, if you're getting booked, yeah. you know, take a take a moment just to see what sort of pattern you have. Yeah, or if you're you're eating some pudding, just take a moment to roll it around in there and then go up to a nice white wall and just stick it. Pudding. Yeah. Pudding. All right. Yeah. Preferably chocolate that's going to show up better yeah, than your, yeah. your vanilla or butterscotch. Okay, let's call the robot over and do a little listener mail before we head out. This first one comes to us from uh, Camilla. Camilla writes to us on Facebook and says, Hi, guys. Let me start my message with an obligatory ego massage. Your podcast is awesome. I listen to it in the gym, and my friends always think it's strange that I burst out laughing while running. Thanks for that. And, you know, we just did an episode on laughter. And we talked and exercise. about yeah, and exercise. So yes, if you are laughing while running, they may think it's weird, but you are getting you might be getting a better exercise and a more um, healthy exercise than they are. So that's listen, right. Listen Endor- to that episode. Endorphins are going through the roof. Yeah, every time we uh, we say something funny. Uh, so anyway, she continues. Thanks for that. Uh, after your three podcasts on maps, I couldn't help but feeling frustrated. I think the the area of my brain is broken. Seriously, every time I come out of a shop, I have no idea which direction I came from and where I should go. Uh, I'm a little better when reading maps, but creating mental maps seems just near impossible. Anyway, I'm sure you got many messages about people and or animals with excellent sense of direction, and I thought I'd share the other end of the spectrum. Blindfold me and twirl me around twice, and I wouldn't find my way home. Keep up the great work, and congratulations on your success. Um, yeah, the, the whole subject of one's ability to uh, orient, orientate yourself in a com- complex or even familiar environment is a, is a very interesting area of study. 
Yeah, and you can also increase your map sense, too. Yes. You can actually, um, you know, try to exercise that part of your brain and train it to increase your abilities. I find with myself, because I'm kind of bad at maps, and some of that comes from the reliance on on uh, on these various map tools that we have, such as GPS, such as printing out a map and just knowing, you know, how many turns to take. And, and also I'm... I'm terrible at remembering the names of streets, which doesn't help that, like, every street in Atlanta is called Peachtree, uh, which isn't just a joke. It's like every street, almost, it seems, is, is named Peachtree. Some are avenues. Yeah. Some and are streets. The, and my the streets are, it's like there are only so many street names that people are allowed to use in every city, and you have to use those, whereas I think we should have crazier street names. We should name them after, uh, you know, I don't know, like Sandworm Avenue. I'd go for that. I, who would ever forget Sandworm Avenue? I wouldn't. Well, I've always wanted to do that, honestly, and I thought about it more in terms of subdivisions because subdivisions always have these great, like, falling oaks. Yeah. And I was like, like, what about just calling that subdivision or that street fallen woman? Yes. Um, yeah. Broken dreams. Yeah. Or um, how about Cloaca Avenue? I like that oh, one. That would be a good one. Man. Yeah. That's so, one that I think I would have that. I'd have to steal it and put it in my home. Yeah. If it doesn't, it maybe it exists, if, but... I hope that it will exist. Please, please exist. Yes. Um, so anyway, uh, Camilla, thanks for writing in and giving us a little food for thought in that area. Uh, there, it is a very interesting uh, area of study. There, there was one really cool episode of, uh, I believe it was a radio lab, where they were talking about individuals who have a particular anomaly that makes them uh, extra prone to becoming disoriented in settings. So uh, look that one up. I believe I shared it on the Facebook recently. We also heard from a listener by the name of Valerie. Valerie writes in from Austin, Texas and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I was listening to the episode about bats and it made me think about when I was a kid. I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. For the first part of the year, we have a few Mexican free-tailed bats that come through town on their migration south. One of those bats decided that our porch was an awesome place to use as a temporary home. We went and talked to the local animal information center and asked what we should do. It was a time of year that the bat was either mating, birthing, or something else that needed to not be disturbed. Since the bat needed to not be disturbed while it was living here, uh, we had to stop using our front door. We had to go out our back door through our backyard and through the gate in the back. Uh, that worked moderately well for the for some of the time, for most of that entire summer. We also had to have anyone who visited our house stop using our door. Now that I look back on it, it seemed like a lot of the to- lot of time to just uh, stop using our front door. But at the time, my parents made it seem like a really cool thing we were doing for a summer. So that was uh, that was that's really interesting. I I remember at one point uh, the house my family lived in had a gazebo, and there was a bat that uh, took refuge up in there. And so it was kind of neat that we had a local bat. Uh, and as I've discussed before, I've tried to get bats to move into a bat house uh, at my current yeah. home yeah. or my previous home, and they, they wouldn't do it. So it makes me sad. Well, but now Valerie is in Austin, that central, right? The Conquer yeah. Street Bridge. Oh, yes, that's right, where they all like, cluster under mm-hmm. there. Yeah. All right. Well, if the rest of you have anything you would like to share about bats or about directions or certainly about fingerprints, we'd love to hear from you. Do you have some sort of unique fingerprint? Do you have no fingerprints? Let us know. We would love to, to have some perspective on that for sure. Uh, certainly about the, the history of fingerprints or simply taking a corpse's hand flesh and slipping it on like a glove and uh, typing. We would love to know about that as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those pages. And we go by the handle Blow the Mind on the old Twitter. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.